Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today, I'm going to take you through another dark and twisted tale that happened in Calhoun County in 1855. Now, this story is about the murder of Bridget Dunn. Now, I'm going to give you a word of warning on this episode. The nature of this crime is pretty graphic, and it may not be suitable for all listening audiences. So I'm just giving you forewarning. If you're squeamish about that sort of thing, or if maybe you're listening in the car with some younger ears that you may not want to have hear graphic details about a woman's death, then I would advise you to hit the pause button and perhaps revisit this episode at a later time. I'll let you be the judge of that. But this story takes place in Bedford Township in Calhoun County on a plank road between Battle Creek and Bedford Township on a cold December night in 1855. So come along and join me. So the early roads in the pioneer era of Southwest Michigan from 1829 to about 1845 were commonly known as the territorial roads or pioneer trails, which stretched as far east as Ypsilanti and as far west as St. Joseph, Michigan. And these were often narrow roads filled with wagon ruts, and they were carved out over the many years on top of the old footpaths of Native Americans. And traveling on these roads was often tedious and slow, and areas were often obstructed by rocks and fallen trees and marshes and stumps and mud. And so one of the early solutions that the pioneer settlers made to facilitate travel and make it a little bit easier on the roads was to build what's known as corduroy roads. And this consisted of logs laying side by side, usually across marshy areas or areas where there was a lot of mud typically. And they were secured with like cross beans or cross logs to hold them in place. And these worked fairly well, but most of the travel on these roads would force these logs apart. And it worked fine when they were using oxen primarily as the, uh, the beasts that pulled the wagons. And they were a little bit more sure-footed. But as horses became more of a traveler on the roads as time went on and oxen faded out, this type of corduroy road was more hazardous to horses because the logs had shifted and they would uh, twist their ankle in it much more easily than an ox would and cause the horse to throw its rider or injure its leg and that sort of thing. And you can imagine what that would do to the hooves and horseshoes and so forth. So these circular logs were not a very good long-term solution. The best solution that followed this was to come up with a wooden highway made of logs hewn into planks. And these became known as plank roads. Timber at this time in history was in abundance and it was actually considered valueless to the pioneer. There was tons of it around and they built homes and things out of it. And they also 
decided to use this as a resource for building some of the early roads. In fact, in 1848, 46 plank road companies were chartered in the state of Michigan. And in 1849, 39 more companies were chartered. And in 1850, more than 60 plank road companies were chartered. And these roads were built all over the state. And you could easily refer to the period between 1845 and 1855 in Michigan as the Plank Road Era, as there were well over 100 companies organized to build these types of roads. And in Calhoun County, one of the Plank Roads that was passed in terms of funding was in 1849 by the legislature, and it was incorporated as the Battle Creek and Hastings Plank Road Company, where they authorized the capital of $40,000 to build a plank road between Battle Creek and Hastings, Michigan. And part of this road was constructed that ran through Bedford Township and on up into Hastings. And the road was made into a toll road. And at different sections along the plank road that you traveled, you stopped at the toll master's house and you paid a toll. And the different tolls varied depending on what you were traveling on the road with. If you were on foot, there was one toll. If you were on horseback or wagon or carriage or stagecoach and so forth, there was a different toll based on what you were using the road for. If you brought in a flock of sheep, you would be charged a certain amount, whereas a single rider on a horseback might have a different fee. So toll stations were established at various points on the road. There was once a toll station just about a mile outside of Battle Creek on its way to Bedford, and that was a common place to stop and pay your toll as you went through. And this plank road was the main route between Bedford, Michigan, Bedford Township, and Battle Creek as one traveled on its route to Hastings, Michigan. So you kind of get the idea. There was this wooden road that was built on these hewn timbers, and it became a much smoother traveling surface for horses and wagons for the most part, and it made travel much easier. And one of the earliest plank roads in Calhoun County was that section of road that I'm talking about, and it went up to Barney's Tavern, which was out in Bedford. And Barney's Tavern's building is still in existence in Bedford. It's now a private multifamily residence, but this, the building is still there and it was restored uh, by some people, I'm going to guess about 10, 15 years ago at this point. It's a beautiful building and I did a video on the, that whole uh, history of Barney's Tavern and the Plank Roads on my YouTube channel. And I'll put a link to that video in the description of the podcast if you're interested in seeing more on that. But this incident happened on the Plank Road section between Battle Creek and Bedford Township. On December 5th, a man by the name of John Burns was walking on the Plank Road on his way to Battle Creek from Bedford Township. And he was walking along that road about 10 a.m. in the morning, and he was about four or five miles from Battle Creek. Heading in the same direction, coming from behind him, was a wagon filled with a load of wheat. And driving that team of horses was a woman by the name of Bridget Dunn. Walking alongside the wagon was her husband, Timothy Dunn. Now, they had just passed Barney's Tavern, which was the stagecoach stop, back in Bedford about a half an hour earlier, and had 
said hello to the tavern keeper's son, Oliver Barney, on their way. They were in good spirits this cold December morning heading into Battle Creek. So Timothy Dunn walked alongside John Burns, and they engaged in social banter along the way as the horses continued walking down the plank road, and they were headed to the toll station. They stayed at the toll station about 15 minutes, and they paid the required tolls, and they engaged in conversation with the toll station man, whose name was William Sudbury. And at this point, uh, Burns observed that Mr. and Mrs. Dunn had a drink of liquor at the tollkeeper's house, and he took his drink from a flask that he had in his coat, and she took it from a glass that was offered to her at the, at the tollkeeper's house. And when they departed, Timothy Dunn climbed aboard the wagon and invited John to ride along the rest of the journey into Battle Creek. So he did. And they parted ways when they reached the city and agreed to meet up in the evening when they planned to ride back together towards Bedford. And they offered Mr. Burns a ride at that time if he wanted to join them. So the Duns, they continued on to the granary because they brought the wheat into Battle Creek to turn that in and collect the money on that. And they sold their wheat. And while in town, they did some shopping. They also met up with a man by the name of John Lowry, who was in the company of another gentleman by the name of George Grosbeck. And they had some business with Mr. Lowry. They owed him $100 and uh, Timothy... Dunn paid him that, and their meeting location was a place called The Hole in the Wall, and both Lowry and Grossback would later recall that both Timothy and Bridget had some drinks at The Hole in the Wall while they were meeting with them around 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. An hour or so later, Lowry ran into Dunn again while he was moving around town, at another establishment called DeVault's, where he witnessed both Mr. and Mrs. Dunn having some more drinks at this establishment. But both of them seemed to be in good spirits. So you kind of get the nature of the Dunn's that Bridget and Timothy Dunn were drinkers, and somewhat heavy drinkers at times. Now, John Burns encountered Bridget later that evening with some parcels bundled up in her apron while she was walking around town, and Timothy followed shortly behind her, carrying a bag of nails. And they were getting ready to load the wagon up. They'd had some other supplies they'd picked up, and they were heading back to Bedford very soon. And John observed inside the back of the wagon at this time were three or four bushels of lime, a hay knife that was lying beside the bags of lime, along with some other supplies. In the 1850s, a hay knife was an elongated, straight, or slightly curved blade, similar to a handheld sickle. It was roughly about two to three feet long, and it had a wooden handle that you held onto, and you used this to hack hay and cut it in the field. Uh, remember, this is before they had threshing equipment and that sort of thing. So any wheat at that time was cut by hand, and this was a tool that was used. And Timothy Dunn picked up a brand new hay knife while he was in town and had that in the back of the wagon. 
And sometimes the hay knives, when I looked these up to see what they actually looked like, I found various versions from that period of time. Some were slightly curved and some were more straight, like kind of a sword. And um, it's just really, it's hard to tell exactly what kind they had when they picked it up. But that's what the hay knife was. So when John Burns meets up with the Dunns and they're getting ready to go, he climbs into the back of the wagon. And Timothy Dunn and Bridget Dunn climbed into the back of the wagon as well. They had two boys with them that were driving the wagon at this point. And they weren't necessarily related to the Dunns. I think they were just boys headed that way. And they said, okay, we want you guys to drive the wagon. And the adults are going to sit in the back. And when he, when Timothy Dunn got into the back of the wagon, he pulled out his flask and he drank. And then he handed it to Mr. Burns. And Burns took a drink. And it was whiskey that he had in the flask. So on the return journey, Burns did not see Bridget take any alcohol in the back of the wagon. But Mr. Dunn was certainly drinking out of his flask along the way. But both of them seemed very pleasant and good-natured at that point. So when the wagon reached the toll station again, uh, Dunn had gone inside the house and paid the toll. And there he met William Sunbury again, asked him for some whiskey in a glass, and he obliged him and he gave him some whiskey to drink. And this was relayed by William Sunbury later on. And this will all kind of come into play as the story builds, so just bear with me. And so... While he was inside, Burns saw that the hay knife was laying in the back of the wagon. It was dark. He was worried about them jumping back in the wagon again and cutting themselves. So he put the hay knife into the front part of the wagon on the front board and where the, the drivers were sitting so that they wouldn't jump into the back and jump on the bags and cut themselves. And that was his thinking behind that. And while inside, Timothy was sitting there having a drink, Mary Sunbury, the tollkeeper's wife, invited Bridget to go inside. And essentially, when she learned that Bridget was outside. And so she offered her some tea. And when she saw that Bridget was kind of tipsy and falling asleep a little bit from the alcohol she'd had that day, she offered the Duns to stay overnight at their house in the guest bedroom and continue their journey in the morning um, because they both kind of, she was worried that, you know, they were tired and the rest of the travelers weren't going as far as they were to Bedford. But the Duns declined the invitation and they instead resumed their journey to Bedford. And Mary would later recall that when they both left her house at the toll station, that they looked like they were about to tip over as they walked back to the wagon. So, both of them were really tipsy at this point. So John Burns departed the couple when the wagon reached within proximity of his home, which was a little bit farther down the road after leaving the toll station. And the two boys who were driving the wagon also departed for their respective homes around that time. So the Duns continued towards Bedford on the plank road, and Timothy took over the driving of the wagon and... Bridget sat next to him. So about a mile west of the toll station in the direction of Bedford, after Burns had left the company and so did the two boys, a man by the name of John Hawes was traveling on foot on an intersecting road 
that connected with the plank road. And he encountered the wagon, and it was about 8 or 9 o'clock that evening. So you can see how the time has kind of passed at this point. It's dark. He hears the wagon go by on the plank road. He wasn't sure if it was a carriage or a wagon, but he heard it um, passing by. And obviously, I guess in that time period in history, it was customary to flag down a wagon and catch a ride. So he was probably thinking that as he uh, encountered the wagon on the plank road. And just after it passed, he heard groans from a person, and he also heard a lot of barking dogs from a nearby farm after the vehicle had gone past. So he couldn't see at that time, like I said, like whether it was a wagon or a carriage or something else. But shortly after that, he heard a loud, sharp sound like a stone being thrown against the box side of the wagon, heavy and hard. And of course, it was dark, so he emerged onto the plank road, and then he walked a little bit further, and he saw that it was a wagon, and the wagon had stopped, so he walked straight towards it. And when he drew closer, he saw that there was a woman lying on the tracks in the road behind the wagon. And she was laying partially on her side with her head pointed towards the wagon. And a man was standing over her next to the wheel of the wagon. And the man, seeing Hawes, said to him clearly, drunk, here is a woman who fell out of the wagon. And Hawes responded, well, get her into the wagon and take her home. And the man responded to him, no, I'll be damned if I do. Damn her. I don't know her. I don't know her. And then the man leaned over the woman while Haas was standing there. And he said in a drunken stupor, Old woman, where are you going? Where did you come from? Where are you going? And Haas now recognized the couple in the darkness, looked at Timothy Dunn and said, It's your wife. And Dunn responded, Well, I'll be damned if it be her, for I'll leave her at some farmhouse along the way. So Hawes replied, you can't leave her here. You know, he was being obviously rational. He wasn't drunk himself. And Dunn answered, I can't get her into the wagon. And so Hawes said, I'll help you. And so that's what he did. He grabbed the woman's arms and Dunn grabbed her feet. And together they lifted her into the wagon. And Hawes noted that the woman made no sound during this time. And she said nothing to him in the exchange that he had with Timothy Dunn. But he was close to her face in the darkness, and he found this a little bit peculiar, but he just assumed that she was drunk and passed out. He didn't think that she was dead, and he thought that she'd just fallen out of the wagon drunk because Timothy Dunn was drunk. And before Timothy Dunn drove off, Hawes told him, you know, you need to cover the woman. She's going to catch cold. And Dunn had responded kind of gruffly, no, damn her, she won't take any harm. So Hawes reached over into the back of the wagon and found a blanket that was a horse blanket of some kind and threw it over the woman because her knees had been exposed under her dress and he was afraid she was going to get really cold. And Dunn didn't offer Hawes a ride. And so Hawes was left standing there as Dunn rode off in the wagon. He would later talk to another neighbor and relay the experience as being very peculiar and um, how drunk Timothy Dunn was, but he continued walking on foot and Dunn rode off into the darkness. So Dunn continues on down the road. His horses take a wrong turn. I guess he was relying more on the horse's intuitive nature of finding its way home. 
and he was probably half drunk in the front of the wagon. The horses end up turning into a neighbor that was past his farm or his house, and um, it was the house of Alicia Carpenter. And he wasn't sure where he was at at this point. It's dark. He's in front of some stranger's house that he can't identify, and he yells out, where am I? And Alicia replies from the house, you're in my yard, and she comes out and she says, look, I'll go get a lantern. And she brings a lantern out and walks over to the wagon. And I guess he identifies that Timothy Dunn is drunk. And she says, look, I'll turn your horse around and I'll point you in the direction of your farm, being a nice neighbor. And he see, she sees Mrs. Dunn lying in the back. And alongside her is this hay knife. And she's assuming that Bridget is asleep. And she says to Mr. Dunn, I'll remove this hay knife and place it in the front with you so that she doesn't get cut. And Timothy Dunn retorted to her pretty loudly, damn her, let her get cut. And so Alicia kind of stepped back a little bit. And then she went up to the head of the horses and pointed the horses in the right direction and told Mr. Dunn how to find his way home. He was actually standing outside of the wagon while she turned it around. And he walked up to her and grappled the harnesses and asked her, you know, are the harnesses all right? And when he did this, she saw in the lantern light that his hand was dripping with blood, as if he'd stuck his hand in a bucket of blood. And this kind of disturbed her. And then she shined the lantern light into the back of the wagon a little bit more clearly and saw that the hay knife was covered with blood. But Dunn got into the wagon and looked at her and says, I have seen more trouble tonight than I have seen in five years. I'm a poor, damn, drunken Irishman. My mother never brought me up to do what I've done. And then he shook the reins and led his team away from Mrs. Carpenter, who stood there a little bit shocked at what she was seeing. And he even had the nerve to shout hello to her as he rode off which was a greeting in that time. They say, hello, I guess when you rode up on somebody in the darkness on a wagon. So Elisa's in shock, Mrs. Carpenter, and before she turns to go back in the house, she hears Dunn talking to his wife in the back of the wagon. And what he's saying is, are you dead? Are you dead? She hears no response from Bridget Dunn. And this kind of sent a chill up her spine, that whole experience. So Timothy Dunn arrives at home, and his 21-year-old daughter Mary greets him outside along with his 19-year-old son Barney. And they observe their mother's laying in the back of the wagon, and she's laying straight with her face straight up. And Mary didn't know what she was laying on in the dark. She assumed she was laying on her shawl and that she just kind of passed out drunk. Her parents were drinkers. The kids knew this. They testified to this at trial that came after this. And she noted all the bags that were in the back of the wagon, which included the lime, and there was a bag of flour and some other things that they purchased in town. So Mary gets a neighbor, Mr. Murphy, and her uncle, John Dunn, and his wife and her brother, Barney, to carry Mrs. Dunn into the house. And when they do this, they see that she's got a cut on her forehead and a big bruise on the side of her face. Up to this point, 
everyone in the house believes that this is just an accident that she fell off the wagon because they're being told this by Timothy Dunn. And so Timothy brings Bridget some tea and tries to pour it down her mouth to get her to drink. And water from the tea is just going down her face, not going in her mouth. And so Barney, seeing all this, the young son who's 19, he starts being upset at the state of his mother. He probably is the first one in the house who realizes that she's dead. And he starts crying, walking around. And um, everyone at the house at this point thinks he's just passed out. Timothy Dunn tells his son Barney to go to a neighbor's house, Mary Hamilton, who apparently was some sort of a nurse, and told him to bring her back. And so he does this. And then when Mary arrives, she sees that the face of Mrs. Dunn has been washed by Timothy Dunn by that time. But there's a noticeable cut on her forehead. There's a sizable bruise on the side of her face. And she also kind of examines her arms and sees that there's about a three-inch cut on her arm. And Mary concludes that Mrs. Dunn is dead. Everyone believes that the cause of death initially was that she fell out of the wagon, probably had a head injury, and died from the injury. So Mary has Mr. Dunn help her carry Mrs. Dunn to a another part of the house where they had this board laid out and so she could examine her. And then she notices that there's some dribbling blood when she's carrying the body. And so she looks up under her dress and she sees that there's some blood around her hips in her clothing, but she erroneously assumes that this is menstrual blood because it was light in color. And so she made no further examination. And while this is going on and while she's examining um, Mrs. Dunn, Mr. Dunn walks over to another neighborhood that had shown up, Mr. Fuller. And he says to Mr. Fuller, this is bad business. Had I known this would have happened, I would not have gone to Battle Creek. I am the rascal and I ought to be shot. He's starting to sober up at this point. But after a time, when they determined that Bridget was indeed dead, they sent for the coroner. And the coroner showed up and did what coroners do in that time period, which was to form an official coroner's inquest. In which case, they the process was to pick two or three men from the community to assist him in an investigation into the death of an individual. And it also meant bringing in a medical doctor to examine the body of Bridget Dunn. And when a doctor did this, he discovered that there was the laceration and the bruising on the eye. There was also a, another contusion next to her nose that had been kind of hidden in all of the swelling on her face. And then he was the first one to actually examine her body. And he discovers there's bruising on her neck. There's a bruising on her collarbone. There's bruising under her right breast. And as mentioned before, he sees the laceration on her arm. He also notices there's bruises on the back of her right hand and along her right hip and bruises. And then when he, I guess, pulls her skirt down, he finds a three-inch deep incision into the side of her right thigh, right above her knee. And it was about four inches long. And he determined that this had been made by the blade of some cutting instrument consistent with a hay knife, because he knew that the hay knife had been found in the back of the wagon covered with blood. So this was the first clue that they determined that Bridget had been stabbed with the hay knife. They still weren't sure if it was an accident yet. Maybe she fell down drunk, cut herself in the back with the hay knife, you know, possible. But the doctor was thinking that what if she'd been hit in the head and that was what caused her to fall off the wagon. 
perhaps she'd been struck in the head with the hay knife and that the injury he was looking at was more consistent with that than her falling and hitting herself or cutting herself on an edge of the wagon or something and falling on the hard plank road. So two other medical doctors were brought in to examine her closer, and that was Dr. Simeon French and Dr. Edward Cox. And they examined her body at one of their offices, and they discovered there was a deep wound that had been missed, and that was into her vagina. And that was consistent with the blade of the hay knife. So this is where the Justice of the Peace, a man by the name of G.W. McAllister, came on the scene and he interviewed Timothy Dunn. And Timothy Dunn told how he and his wife had traveled to Battle Creek that morning, and while in town he had purchased a hay knife, as well as a bottle of whiskey and some other supplies while they were in town, including the lime and the flour and some other stuff. He also said that they had drinks of alcohol when they visited the grocery store and various other locations in town, including stopping for drinks at the toll station. And he also indicated that Bridget had been drinking as well. And he said that when they rode away from dropping off their passengers, they were both riding in the front, and that every time that he would hit a bump on the road, it would be a jolt to the wagon and... Bridget would yell out to him, Oh, Tim, don't kill me. And he took that as a criticism on his driving. And this made him angry. And the more she did this, the more he wished to punish her. And when they pressed Dunn on this, about his statements, they concluded that he was very angry with her. And then they connected the dots that Dunn had struck her upside the head with the hay knife, which was put in the front by their passenger, John Burns, and that he had reached down and struck her with it. That's how she got the cut on her head. And that knocked her off the wagon and she fell down. He continued driving the wagon down the road and then stopped for a little bit, probably backed up the team of horses or something. He gets out of the wagon and he decides to stab her. And he stabs her at least twice based on the injuries. First time he stabs her in the thigh and she probably regains some level of consciousness. Maybe she was a bit bewildered at that point and reaches up, and that's how she gets her arm cut, you know, as a defensive wound. And then he stabs her again in the vagina. And then he throws the knife into the back of the wagon, which was the stone-sounding thud that was heard by John Hawes, who was walking up at that time. So Hawes walked up right around the time he had just thrown the hay knife into the back of the wagon. It was covered with blood. In the darkness, Hawes did not see this. And he sees a man standing over this woman in the road, and that's when that exchange happens. So he gets help from Hawes to load her up in the wagon. He tries to pretend that he doesn't know the woman. That doesn't go well because Hawes finally recognizes him and says it's his wife. So he kind of passes that off that he's drunk, and then the chain of events happened. So the trial was held in January, and it went on through February of 1856. And all of these witnesses that I mentioned so far in the story testified, including both of their children. And they had other children, but they weren't present that evening, so they weren't brought in to testify. The prosecution really wanted to convict this guy. So they brought in not only the three doctors that had examined her, 
but they brought in four other medical doctors from Marshall, where the trial was held, to examine the notes from the other doctors based on the um, autopsy or the examination. And they interviewed them on what their conclusions were. And one of the things that had come out was there wasn't a lot of blood. And two reasons were brought up for that. Um, the injury to that area uh, in the growing would, of a woman would have caused more vascular bleeding inside internally. And that was probably why there wasn't as much blood coming out because she he probably ruptured something inside when he stabbed the blade into her. And they surmised that she was experiencing a lot of internal bleeding. Plus, it was very cold outside, which would have slowed the blood flow a little bit. And the fact that she had a lot of alcohol in her system, maybe alcohol would have caused more blood flow. There was blood on the knife, um, but there was blood found in the wagon, but there wasn't much in the house. But by the time they brought her in, she was near death and her... Uh, her blood was starting to gel is what they determined you know so she was apparently still alive when they carried her from the wagon into the house because her son barney had mentioned that he heard her groan when he carried her but no other reports of her giving out any other sound when she was inside the house so she probably passed away right at that point when they picked her up out of the wagon and carried her inside so the end result, the trial went on from January till about May. The jury deliberated for three and a half hours. And on Friday, May 2nd, 1856, they returned a verdict of murder in the second degree. And the presiding judge, Mr. Pratt, sentenced Timothy Dunn to hard labor at the state prison for 25 years in Jackson, Michigan. And he was sent to prison the following Monday. So that's the story of the murder of Bridget Dunn. It's a little bit disturbing. It's a little bit uh, graphic and certainly shocking. And um, one of those odd stories that I was able to dig up from the annals of history in my research. And I have been working on a true crime book this year. And I started that project probably about two years ago, collecting stories and writing. I and mean, I've carried some of the stories on this podcast, and I'm going to be putting a collection out on that book. Now, I originally thought I would get it published this year, but I spoke to another author that I interviewed and mentioned to her about the project, Ambrose Hammond, if you've listened to the podcast. She recommended to me to reach out to her publisher that published history books. And I just wanted to let you know I've already done that. And they came back and they love the book. And I have just recently signed a contract with them to publish this book. And uh, I will be submitting the final manuscript to them probably in August or September is my final deadline. And uh, maybe before then. But they're looking at publishing it in the first quarter of 2024. So that's their timeline, and I've got to work within the confines of their contract. So look forward to that in the first quarter of next year. And it uh, is a project that I'm working on on the side, doing a lot of research. So I may tell some other stories, but this story and several of the other ones that I've covered on the podcast will be included in the book and a lot of other ones that you've not heard yet. And I probably won't be doing those because I want to leave them as a surprise for the book itself. And, uh, Hopefully, you guys, when the book is out and available in the stores and that sort of thing, that you'll uh, avail yourself of it and buy it. 
it will be distributed through Barnes and Noble and it'll be available on Amazon and all those places. And I'll probably be doing some book signings around uh, Southwest Michigan. I'm working out places to do that. I've already lined up one bookstore in Marshall and uh, I'll be signing books at the museum here in Battle Creek. And there's a few other locations that I'm, I'm researching right now. But it's early on. That's a little bit farther down the road for that kind of marketing because the book isn't even out yet. So that's the process. I wanted to give you guys that update and share another grizzly story with you that happened in southwest Michigan here. And I have stories in this collection that go as far south as Coldwater over to Jackson. Um, there's one in Eaton County. Um, there's another one in Kalamazoo, and I'm working on a few other counties. There's one in St. Joseph that I'm working on. There's actually two two or three stories that are connected to cold water, which is kind of interesting. And then, of course, there's a lot of them in Calhoun County. And they're all from the Victorian era, so there's nothing beyond 1900 in this collection. And they're all interesting stories like this one. And this is one of the older ones that took quite a bit of uh, digging to find the story because there wasn't uh, a very deep data trail on this one and it took uh, quite a bit of uh, creativity to find the details of this story so it was kind of interesting but I also enjoy the history of the plank roads so it kind of ties in with some of the history and that's the pattern I'm trying to put together in the book is not only tell you a horrible murder story but also give you some of the history from the period so that you can learn a little bit about the Victorian era as well so it's not all dark and gloomy and um, and so that's the project so that's going to conclude today's episode looking at the grisly story of the murder of Bridget Dunn if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And I will put the link to the video on Plank Roads in the description notes of this podcast if you want to watch that on YouTube. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. <laughs>